0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In this morning's gospel reading from the fourth chapter of St. John, our Lord goes back to Cana of Galilee. He had just been there two chapters earlier when he performed the first public miracle of his ministry at the wedding feast, where he turned water into wine. And upon his return to the city, he was confronted by a nobleman who had a sick son on the verge of death. Now, the ethnic identity of this nobleman is ambiguous. Is he a Jew or a Gentile? Usually, the Gospels give us some sort of indicator that then colors how Jesus interacts with the person. But here, we don't really get a definitive answer. It could have been that he was a Roman nobleman there to help subjugate the Jews, or he could have been a high-up figure in the Herodian regime, in which case he would have most likely been Jewish. But we have no definitive clues one way or the other. Now, the whole fourth chapter of John's gospel taken together seems to be about Jesus' ministry to non-Jews because it dedicates most of its discussion to Jesus' time in Samaria. So I think it's probable that the nobleman was a Gentile, but the ambiguity in the text may have been intentional. What is important about this man is not his ethnicity But the fact that he's a human being, even more a father, whose son is sick and on the verge of death, and so he comes before our Lord. Yet, in response to the initial request, our Lord seems to offer a bit of a rebuke Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why does Jesus respond like this? He, he responds like this multiple times where it probably makes most of us feel a little uncomfortable. It's a little jarring the way that Jesus talks. And I don't think it's to be mean. I don't think it's to minimize the man's pain. And I don't think he's trying to run the man off. I, to help us understand why, I think it's important to recognize that the second person pronoun you in English can be either singular or plural. Plural making it a kind of confusing or slippery word. Is Jesus talking only to this man or is he talking to a larger group? The ambiguity wrapped up in the word you is why where I'm from, people say y'all. <laughs> the Greek verb here is for you see, that you, you must see to believe, is actually plural in meaning. Jesus is not just speaking about the man individually. But rather, it would translate something like, Y'all see. Well, at least where I'm from. Yeah, all y'all. Like many other encounters that Jesus has, where sometimes his behavior looks a little bit puzzling, this is a test. He's testing the man. And it's a chance for the man to show that he's unique, that he's different from the crowds. Because the crowds followed Jesus around and they clamored for miracles, for signs but their reasoning for doing so wasn't out of belief or a desire to believe, but a desire to have a spectacle that might entertain them, like some sort of magic show or musical act or sporting event. The man's response to Jesus' challenge makes it clear that his motive was in fact different than the crowds that Jesus was criticizing. Come down, ere my child die. Commentator B.F. Westcott calls this a faith, however imperfect, which springs out of a father's love. And Jesus acknowledges that faith by providing a short reply. Go thy way, thy son liveth. Notice that the words Jesus uses there are in the present tense. Your son lives or your son is living. Jesus does not use the future tense. Your son will be okay. Your son will recover. No, he lives now. This is a declarative statement highlighting the authority of our Lord's words. And in response to these words, we're told that the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And when he arrived home, He found his son just as Jesus had said. And when he asked his servants when the recovery occurred, it was exactly the same time that Jesus had said, Thy son liveth. This recognition leads to the conclusion of the story where the nobleman himself believed and his whole house. Now, there's an important question that's raised about this reading in many of the commentaries. And it's this, at what moment did the man have decisive faith? We're explicitly told twice that the man had faith. The first time in verse 50, after Jesus told the man that his son is well. And in verse 54, after the man actually saw that his son was well. And I think we could even add a third alternative, which is when Jesus, when the man actually came to Jesus in the first place, was that the moment of decisive faith? But let's table the question for a moment and and actually delve into the rebuke that Jesus gives. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe because that sheds some light onto the question of the man's faith. There's a tension throughout the gospel according to St. John, which we can best describe as reluctant sign giving on Jesus' part. Over and over again, he'll perform a sign and then chide the crowds for needing him to have performed that sign. We see this reluctance at the very beginning of his ministry at the wedding feast of Cana, where instead of enthusiastically turning the water into wine, he says, my hour has not yet come. And the theme continues throughout the book until it reaches its culmination in the figure of Doubting Thomas. We all know the story of Doubting Thomas, who refused to believe the resurrection of our Lord, even after women eyewitnesses and other apostles who saw our Lord told him that Jesus was resurrected. So Jesus appeared to Thomas, and he even let Thomas put his fingers in the wounds, in his wrist and his side. And seeing and touching those wounds did something for Thomas, because he exclaimed, my Lord and my God, as an act of faith. And these are, interestingly, the same words that the priest prays to himself when the host is elevated and the chalice is elevated during communion. But after this realization, Jesus provides a rebuke for Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In the wake of our reading, then, I think we can say that there are three kinds of people— in relation to the gospel proclamation. First, there are those who believe without seeing. This is clearly the best category to be in and what we should all strive for, because it stems from confidence in God and a childlike trust in him. The second category is those who believe after seeing. So St. Thomas is one who fits in this category. And as our Lord says, it's certainly preferable to disbelief, but also not as optimal as the being one of those who believes without seeing. And the final category are those who do not believe at all. In John's gospel, this category often seems to be those crowds who want to see signs for spectacles. Matthew sixteen four, Jesus proclaims, "...an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign." So in what category does the nobleman from the gospel reading belong? Well, I think we can rule out the third category. He's not part of the faithless, cynical, and self-indulgent crowds because the reading presents him in much too positive a light. Some commentators suggest he fits best in the second group because the text tells us that he believes twice, both in response to what Jesus says and then does. But I would argue that the man fits more with the first group, those who do believe without seeing. And my reason for thinking this is precisely because the man goes to Jesus unprompted. When Thomas believes, Jesus has to appear to Thomas and say, touch, it's okay. But the man doesn't have any sort of compulsion to go to Jesus. He goes purely out of his own desperation, and he's reached rock bottom, a sense of Pure, pure helplessness, which belies a conviction, however vague or, or imprecise it might be, that Jesus is the only one who can help his boy. And this, I think, is an admission that Jesus is more than a regular human. He's even more than a great teacher. But even then, even the fact that the nobleman shows up we can't give him too much credit because the only reason he could show up at all is an effect of grace. It's the prevenient grace that goes before that enables him to come. And then the spoken word of our Lord works in the man to stir up belief. And the effect of Christ's words and actions strengthens his faith and converts his whole household. The stages that the nobleman goes through are the same stages those of us who are Christians go through. Prevenient grace works in us to bring us to the baptismal font, whether that happened to us when we were a baby or later in life. The proclamation of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments work in us to increase our faith. And finally, when we look back at God's faithfulness, both to his people, Israel in the Old Testament, to the early church, and in our own personal experiences and lives, we are further confirmed and strengthened. And I think at the heart of this reading is an important principle, namely that faith isn't static. It's not a one-time event. It's not one and done. Faith is a gift that's infused in us by the Holy Ghost. It's something that has to be tended, that has to be stoked, that has to be cared for. And we do this by continually returning to our Lord with the same sort of desperation that the nobleman exhibited for his son in our reading this morning. Now today is the 21st Sunday after Trinity. We mentioned that earlier. The last Sunday of November is the first Sunday in Advent. So this means that ordinary time is nearing an end and that the new year is coming. And the new liturgical year from Advent to the Feast of the Ascension provides us the opportunity to walk the steps of our Lord again as we follow his life from his birth to his death to his resurrection and to his ascension and all the events that happen in between. And I think our collect of the day is preparing us to take this journey by having us walk through the steps that the nobleman walks through in our reading this morning. The collect reads, Grant, we beseech thee, merciful Lord, to thy faithful people, pardon and peace, that they may be cleansed from all their sins and serve thee with a quiet mind. Grant us pardon and peace is the nobleman's request for his son's healing. In the story, it was a physical healing, but in our case, we ask for a spiritual healing, that we would be healed from the effects of sin. That they may be cleansed from all their sins is a result of the healing, just like the boy's restoration of health was the effect of Christ's words. So the healing of our souls is affected through the words of Christ. And finally, that we might serve him with a quiet mind speaks to our resolve After having experienced the power and faithfulness of God, just as the man and his house believed upon seeing that his son was healed. When we see what God has done for us, it causes us to serve him with a quiet mind. So my prayer, as your new rector, is that we as a community corporately, and each of us as the individuals who make up the broader community, might continually live into this rhythm, a rhythm of confession, reception, and sanctification. Confession in that we come to God through the church, admitting that we have fallen short, being honest about our sins. We receive his forgiveness, and even more than that, we receive his body and his blood in the Eucharist, and his word is grafted into our hearts through the preaching of the gospel. And finally, As we receive him, as we hear him, we are made to be more like him. So that when people see us, they don't see us, they see our Lord working through us. And that's the kind of community and the kind of people that we should strive to be as disciples of our Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.